it's time to sit down and relax for the good, the bad, and the sequel Q&A with your host, Doug. Happy Monday. Hope you're doing well. Hope you're staying safe. Hope you had an amazing weekend. And usually on a Monday, it's a bonus interview, which this is a bonus interview in the sense that it's an extra one, but this is someone that worked on a lot of sequels. And that is casting director Glenn Daniels. It's a name that you, who really knows any casting directors if you're just a casual or even if you are a movie lover. But man, this guy I bugged so much right from the first emails I ever sent out when me and Jamie went on this sequel watching adventure. Caddyshack 2, he casted for that. We talk about that. And uh, Police Academy 6 is the one that got him. He goes, oh, that movie. Since you're a fan of that movie, I'll finally do the interview. It went like three or four back, and I'm really happy that he doesn't do interviews, that he chose me uh, to talk to because, man, I had such a blast. And you're going to love Glenn's story, how he went from dancing to almost falling into casting and then really helped to shape the lives of actors that you and I love like Woody Harrelson, Lisa Kudrow, Terry Hatcher, and so many more. So without further ado, here is the amazing, and that's selling it a little short, the amazingly amazingly Glenn Daniels. I'm good. What's up? Awesome. Well, thanks so much for taking the time. I know I bugged you for a while. uh, Yeah, yeah. well, that was my bad for making you for making it a while oh don't worry about that you had a lot going on accept responsibility for that cool man yeah so like i did like doing with these is finding out how people got into you know what they're doing you know what they did for so many years and obviously any good movie tv show there's a beginning so where'd you grow up i grew up in los angeles with the hollywood sign outside my bedroom window no way so you're in the thick of it right from the start pretty much (laughs) pretty much Cool. So growing up, when uh, did you have like an inkling that you wanted to work in the movie business? That's a really good question. And I'm, I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. I mean, I remember, I remember watching the Oscars when I was a really young kid and thinking it was really cool and wondering who are all these people and how they get there and what are they doing? And, you know, why do we know about them? But it, but it they were cloudy thoughts, not you know. Oh, gee, how cool! I want to do that. It wasn't like that. So, what was like the first thing that you wanted to do? Like whether it be in high school or middle school, was there like a dream before doing this? Before I got into casting, I was a professional dancer for ten years. No way. Yeah. Where at? In, out in L.A. In New York. Oh, cool! I'm in New Jersey, so not too far. Right. No, I was in, I went to school at UC Berkeley and I got involved with the dance department there. And uh, the guy who ran the dance department at UC Berkeley had previously been in Martha Graham's company. And he told me that if I really wanted to be a dancer, I needed to move to New York. So I moved to New York and then I lived there for the next 45 years. Oh, no way. So when you were doing this casting, you were in New York. Uh, well, I went back and forth and back and forth. I had, there was a period there in the nineties where I had, um, I had a home in New York city and I had a home in Los Angeles. That's awesome. And then I think it was 19, it's 92 or 93. I went back and forth on an airplane 21 times. 
Yeesh. And I thought, okay, yeah, this is too much. Yeah. Um, so I planted myself back in New York. Um, but I, when I worked, when I was working on films and television, um, I would travel all over, you know, doing, you know, I, depending on the role, depending on what was needed, I would um, have open calls in Boston and Miami and Chicago and places like that. But I would go back and forth from New York to LA as needed. Well, that's awesome. So how, what was the first step that you had from being, you know, being a dancer into casting? Like IMDb is never right. And that's the only thing I can go by. The first thing they yeah, had. No, yeah. Yeah. What do they have? Uh, they have you as a casting assistant for Wildcats. No, that was okay. totally not my first gig. Okay, um, cool. So what happened was. When I, when I moved to New York, I started apprenticing with Merce Cunningham's company, and it was down the block from a, um, a clothing boutique where in between classes and rehearsals, I would work part-time for, I think it was $3 an hour. I can't remember how long time ago, I can't remember, but I think, I'm pretty sure it was like $3 an hour. And there was a gal who lived across the, uh, around the corner from the store who used to come in and buy clothes for me. And we became friends. And she was a casting director. And she worked for Marion Doherty, who is to casting what Mother Nature is to God. <laughs> and we became really good friends. And she used to come see me perform all the time. And I would be her plus one sometimes for screenings and things like that. And she always used to say to me, you know, if you ever stop dancing, you might be really good at this. And at the time, I was one of those dancers, which is every dancer that there is, who thinks that you stop dancing when they put nails in your coffin. <laughs> so it never really occurred to me. And then around the time that I was about to turn 30, and I'd been dancing for 10 years, and I thought to myself, oh, this isn't going to really last much longer. And I had no talent for choreography and no talent for teaching. And I thought, well, what am I going to do? So I called her up on the phone, and I said, you know how you're always doing this and that? Are you saying this and that? And she said, yeah. And I said, well, I think it's about time for me to transition. So she introduced me to some people, and through the luck of the draw, um, a guy named Joel Thurm, who had uh, cast the TV show of Taxi. Yeah. And he had cast, oh, Grease, the movie of Grease. Oh, he cool. had just been named. He had just been named the head of casting for NBC. Um, and this is when Fred Silverman in the glory days was the president of, of entertainment at NBC. And he was looking to staff a, a casting department in New York. And he called... I was working part-time. So uh, Gretchen Rennell is the woman who I'm talking about, who was a friend of mine. And she had tried to set me up with a whole bunch of people who were um, casting people and none of them needed assistance or interns or anything that I could break in with. So she helped get me a job as an agent's assistant at an agency that doesn't exist anymore. And while I was there, I was working late one night. I was the only one in the office. And... Joel called to speak to my boss and I just in my polite business like way said well this is Glenn can I help you with something and he said Glenn who 
I see Glenn Daniels. And he said, oh, I keep hearing your name. I want to meet you. So I met with him and he hired me to be the assistant to whoever he was going to hire as the head of casting for NBC in New York. So wow. my first gig, my first gig was super high powered, super um, uh, at the top of the ladder. And I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. <laughs> None. I had to like learn on the job. Fake it till you and make it. Oh boy, was I faking it. Was <laughs> I faking it. As a matter of fact, the, the woman who was my boss, when she, she had, we had a, a meeting that was sort of, um, not perfunctory, it's not the right word, but it was sort of like a rubber stamp. Like he was going to hire me to be the assistant, no matter who got the real job. So she, so she was offered the real job. So she and I met to see if we were going to get, get along and we got along great. But while, during the meeting, she, we, the, the, the first show that we worked on together at NBC was a show called the gangster Chronicles. Um, and she showed me a list of the people who had been brought in for that show so far. And there were about 40 names on the list. And I didn't know who any of them were. Uh. And I was like, Oh yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. Oh yeah. Cool. I, I, I mean, I, I had never heard of any of them. So I had a lot of homework to do and I did a lot of homework. And by the time that job was over, cause it only lasted two years because Fred Silverman was fired and he was replaced by Grant Tinker, Mary Tyler Moore's husband. Oh, okay. Um, who who headed up NBC. And the first thing that Grant Tinker did as the head of NBC was to get rid of the New York casting department. And my boss and I actually heard about it in the elevator at 30 Rock when we were coming back from lunch. Oh. Like we heard some other people in another department going, so did you hear Grant Tinker's closing the casting department here? That's how we found out about it. Oh, that's terrible. You know, it's funny. I hear that too many times from people I talk to. As soon as like a new regime comes in, it's either like shows that were under the previous, they cancel or they get rid of people. I don't know. I, I get it, but it doesn't make sense. Well, because they have to, somebody has to piss on what was there before them and spread their own scent. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I, I hate to make it so animalistic, but that's really what it is. No, it's true. It happens that's in all absolutely what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So that was actually my first gig was, 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 I was the assistant to the head of casting for New York for NBC. And that was from 1980 to 1982. Wow. So then from there, after you hear that in the elevator, what was like the next step for you? We were fired. <laughs> I know that. <laughs> we were, we, we were fired and I worked on a movie um, so I was uh, a gun for hire and I worked on, I worked on a couple of movies, I think, um, as the sort of New York liaison for them. And the first one that I did was a movie. I, I, I'm, how old are you? I, I was born in 86, but I know a lot of old movies. In 86, I so this was all right. So this was way before, this is before you were born. This is there was a movie dark, that yeah. Starred, yeah. There was a movie that starred Molly Ringwald called, Space Hunters Adventure in the 3D Zone. This was 1982, 83. And oh, wow. so I was hired. Yeah. I was hired in New York to like find the part that Molly Ringwald got. 
Um, and then I did that for a couple of other movies. And then um, getting full circle back to Marianne Doherty, she was looking for somebody in New York to help her on the search for the new Tarzan, which was the Hugh Hudson movie um, that wasn't called Tarzan. It was called, oh, isn't that funny? I can't remember right now, but it wasn't called Tarzan. Um, oh, Greystoke. It was called Greystoke. Okay, yeah. The cool. legend of... The, the legend of Tarzan and the apes or something like that. But it was called yeah, I'm looking stuff. at it right now. Okay. So I was hired in New York to look for the part that Christophe Lambert finally got. Um, she, Marion was looking in LA. I was looking in New York. A uh, casting director in Paris named Margot Capayer was looking in Paris. And somebody else was looking in London. And I forget. Oh, 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 oh. Who was it? Mary... Mary, can't remember her last name right now. Um, she was looking in London. So there were four of us looking all over the world. And actually, everybody who was screen tested for the part came from me. It was Viggo Mortensen, Whoa. Kevin Bacon, Kevin Bacon, Matthew Modine, and, um, oh, uh, not Carrie Elwes. Um, Vigo, Kevin, Matthew, and maybe it was Carrie Elwes. Those were the four people who were screen tested for the part, and Hugh Hudson turned them all down. And then Margot in Paris came up with Christophe Lambert, and he got the part. Wow. So, af yeah. so after, uh, after that happened, Marion said to me, well, look, I'm going to be working on a lot of movies, and I need somebody in New York. So I'm going to open up. She was she was working for Warner Brothers Film. She was the vice president of casting for Warner Brothers at that time. She said, so I'm going to open up a New York office and I want you to run it. So I, I transferred from working in television from NBC to working in film for Warner Brothers. And I stayed with Warner Brothers and her for 10 years. Oh, awesome. So that's my history. Cool. So some of the movies, I a lot of the movies you worked on are really really awesome movies that I love. So, so when you get these roles, so what does a casting director exactly do? Like when you had that first gig, when you were the, do you remember the first one that you had that you were in charge? Was it, who's that girl? Madonna? Uh, that was the first time I got screen credit. Okay. Um, um, let me think, let me think. Um, I feel like there was an independent film that I, yes, there was, there was an independent film that I worked on when I was doing the New York work for Marion before I got, who's that girl. There was an independent film that came through New York that was being, being shot in England. And I worked on it on the side. I had her blessing to do it, but I worked on it on the side and it was the first time I was actually in charge of casting a movie. And it was called fuck. Um, it wasn't called fuck. Um, <laughs> are you on IMDb right now? Yeah, it's not on there. The earliest things on well, here. So look up, look up, look up an actress who has since passed named Karis Korfman, C-A-R-I-S. And then her last name is C-O-R-F-M-A-N. And there should be a movie around 1982 that she did. Uh, Something in uh, between. 
No. Uh, the only other what about one, after that? Uh, Nesto, that's TV show. Dream Child, that's 85. Dream Child, Dream Child, 85. Okay, so Dream Child was the first movie that I sort of kind of did myself. Okay. But I didn't do the whole movie because I was, I was sharing it with whoever the casting director was in London, who I don't even remember who that was. But the first time that I got screen credit as the sole casting director was on Who's That Girl? So what's the process? Like they bring you on, they say, Hey, Glenn, we want you to be the casting director is how much is already pieced together. Like is Madonna already, or are you looking at the script? Madonna was, it depends. It depends on the movie. Yeah. Sometimes the star or the first or the main stars are attached and sometimes nobody is attached and you have to find the person. Okay. Um, so it, it completely depends. But what happens is, you have as an independent cast as, as a studio casting director it's different you're given some you're assigned a movie and you have to go cast it so i was like for instance i was assigned clean and sober and they said go do it oh cool um, really? but so when you, you're when you're in, i was gonna say you came up with michael Cl- keaton when you looked at that script and- correct there was nobody oh, cast in that movie that's awesome there was nobody cast in that movie um uh when you're an independent casting director, a star or more than one star may be attached. Like when I did What About Bob, um, Bill Murray was attached, but Richard Dreyfuss was not. Oh, really? So was that yeah. your first choice? Like when you're looking at that, you present all those people to like the director? Well, the- what, you do as a, what you do as an independent casting director is somebody hears, it's all word of mouth, and somebody hears about you or somebody recommends you, and then you get a call from the studio or the producer and they say um so and so gave us your name and we want to know if you're available and if you'd like you know we want to send you the script and see if you're interested in doing this movie excuse me so then you go and you read the script and literally what you do in the meeting is you go inside and you tap dance and you give them all of your ideas for what you thought of this you know ideas of actors for the script you you give away your ideas for free. And the only thing that a casting director ever has is their ideas. So they get, you give them to them for free and then they decide whether they liked you or not. And then they either hire you or you don't. And I wow. cannot even, there is a list as long as my arm of movies that I met on that I gave them my ideas that I didn't get hired for that the people I gave them ended up in the movie. Oh, that's terrible. And I'm not the only one. I mean, every casting director in Hollywood has, can tell you the same story. Yeah. It's not, it's not unusual to me. It happens all the time. It happens all the time. Any memorable you... ones? Uh, <laughs> but I'm not going to mention them because then I would oh, be incriminating true, yeah. other people. That's true. I would be incriminating other people. But yeah, there there were some huge movies oh, that I didn't get hired for that, 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 that you know, the stars were, were right off my list. Now, having said that, I don't know that they weren't on other people's lists too. Yeah, no, They could have been. They could have been. But it happens, you know, it's just the name of the game. It happens all the time. So anyways, then when you, if you do get hired, what happens is you read the script and then you meet with the director and you come up with ideas for all of the major parts and you go, uh, you know, well, what about this person or what about that person? And the director says, yes, no, maybe. And from that, those meetings with the director, then you can finally hone in 
on what you're thinking and what they're thinking and what the studio is thinking and then where to focus in on. So what was the studio thinking for Caddyshack 2? God only knows what they were thinking making that movie in the first place. <laughs> God <laughs> only knows. How early on were you brought on? Because I've read stories. At the how, beginning. So you were there when it was going to be Rodney? Uh-huh. Oh, my God. How? So so that must have made your job pretty like you must have had a scramble. I'm sure there's a, obviously a time frame for a movie. So he doesn't agree. Cause I don't know if you probably know better than I, but they thought from what I was reading online, like, was it money or the timing of the filming? Honest to God. I don't remember. No, I don't. I don't remember. I, I honestly don't remember, but th- I was told it was going to be Jackie Mason. And I was like, really? <laughs> do, do I have, do I really have to do this? And I had to do it because I was an employee of Warner Brothers Studio and they handed me the movie. So I had to do it. Yeah. Hal Ramis um, tried to get out of it. And they said, uh, if you do it, it'll hurt like the, the credibility of the movie. So he like didn't even have anything to do with the final script. They basically changed the whole thing because Jackie yeah. Mason's character is kind of like Rodney, but not, not like Rodney at all. Not really. Not really. <laughs> and I had worked with, I had worked with Harold previously on Club Paradise. Oh, okay. And he was a total, total, total sweetheart. I mean, yeah. just a complete sweetheart. So you know if he's walking off a movie, it's not pretty. No, no, that's true. So then, so then in your timeline of movies, right now, we're right around, I'm sure there's some, again, like you said, you walked in, you pitched for eating, they didn't choose you. But so 89, Police Academy 6. I will do anything not to talk about that movie. The only thing, the only thing I will tell you that was the nadir of my career. I know that's what you said in your email. Yeah, and that was that was the thing that got me to leave Warner Brothers. Actually, was that they gave me that movie, and I thought, okay, I'm out of here. If they're going <laughs> to give me movies like this, I'm out of here, and that's why I left Warner Brothers. But the one thing I will tell you about that movie is the part that Marsha Warfield plays. I wanted Roseanne Barr. And nobody knew who Roseanne Barr was, and the studio turned her down. Oh, no way. Way. What'd you know her from? Like, again, like you said. You, you I, just knew who, I just knew who she was. Yeah, yeah, I just knew who she was. I mean, when, when you're a casting director working in Hollywood, you have to know who every comic is, every dancer, every singer, every Broadway person. Every, every, I, when, when I was active in casting, I would go to the theater five, six nights a week. Oh, wow. So you, so you find everybody before anybody else has found them, and you try and find something for them. For instance, it was, 19, it was right before Police Academy, and I was working on a movie with Sandra Locke called Impulse, starring okay. Teresa Russell. I see that on here, yeah. And, and Sandra Locke had gotten that movie, obviously, because she was, she was uh, Clint's girlfriend. And so they were trying, you know, Clint has a deal with Warner Brothers and they were trying to keep him happy. So they gave, and Sandra wanted to direct and she had directed Rat Rat Boy and she wanted to direct another movie and she had this script of Impulse. First, let me just say, working with her was a complete pleasure from beginning to end. We got along great. She was awesome and I loved working with her. I have, you know, I mean, I'm not just saying that because she's passed. She was great. But while I was working on that movie, I went to see a play on Sunset Boulevard at the Tiffany Theater. And I saw this girl who was so 
spectacular that I thought to myself, I have to find something for her. And I called her into my office. It was on a Friday or Saturday night that I'd seen the play. And I called her into my office on Monday. And I said, who are you? And where do you come from? And how have I not seen you? And blah, 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 blah. (laughs) And so she told me about her background. And this was the first thing she had ever done. And I said, okay, well, I'm working on a movie. It's almost entirely cast. She didn't have a SAG card or anything. I'm working on a movie. It's almost entirely cast, but you are so phenomenal. I am going to find you something in this movie. And she was all, gee, thank you. And she didn't have an agent. She didn't have a manager. She didn't have anybody. And the only thing that I could find for her to do in this movie was to play a prostitute sitting on the floor in the jail cell with no lines. She wasn't an extra. She was a day player. She wasn't an extra. But I thought, if anybody can do something with this part, she can do something with it. And I hired her. I paid her scale. I made the deal with her because she was living, she was by herself and she didn't have an agent. I then introduced her to an agent and her name was Lisa Kudrow. Ah, what? And yeah. And that's the kind of stuff that you do when you're a casting director. You find somebody and you're like, okay, this person is golden. That's this so person cool. is golden. And the play that I saw her in was called The Ladies' Room, and it later became her movie, Romy and Michelle's oh, High, High School, School Reunion. Oh, no way. That was the play that I saw her in, but it was originally called The Ladies' Room. And she was everything that she became, everything in Friends and everything in all the movies that she's done, you could see it in that show on stage. Look at that, man. No, I was going to, I was going to ask you about finding people like that. So one person in who's that girl that I've really like popped out to me was Stanley Tucci. He was like construction worker. His first part, his, that was the first part, first role he ever did. He was straight out. That's awesome. Here are, here's a list of the people that I gave their first. Okay, cool. Ethan Hawke, Woody Harrelson, Wesley Snipes. Oh, that was both in Wildcats. Correct. Both in Wildcats, which which is how they met each other, which is how white men can't jump came to be in the first place because they met each other uh, on that set. Now, here's my Woody Harrelson. Here's my Woody Harrelson story. Okay. There is in every film I've ever worked on, and I think I... including the ones I got credit for and I didn't get credit for. I think it's something like I counted once. It was like 155 films I worked on. Jesus. Okay. Yeah. Oh, there's people who've worked on tons more than me. Oh, no, I know that. But still, I'm saying just based on what I can see and what you really did, it's a big difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a big difference. Well, because if you don't get credit on a film, if you only do the local casting or you only do the New York casting, but there's a main person in LA or there's a main person in London, you usually don't get credit. You You were a hired hand. So there's most of my movies, that was the case. The yeah. only movies that they list there are the ones that, that you know, I got the single card credit for. So, um, Woody, in every film I've ever worked on, there is always one role that the director obsesses on. And it can be as meaningless as the cop who's in soft focus at the back of the room who says, follow me, sir. Or it could be the lead in the movie or anything in between. But there is always one role that the director obsesses on. Wow. Michael Ritchie, God bless his soul. The role that he obsessed on in Wildcats was the one that Woody played, Krasinski. And 
he just obsessed on it. And every person that I brought to him wasn't funny enough or wasn't this enough or wasn't that enough or wasn't some other thing enough. And he said, keep looking and keep looking and keep looking. And I would have open calls at high schools in New York. I would stand out front. There was a, there was a, a, a Polish Catholic high school on the Lower East Side where I stand, stood out front for days on end and handed out flyers to kids and said, come see me in my office. And I, would, I read, I don't know, 150 kids. And, and, I would, and I would bring them, you know, I would bring the best of the worst in to see him. And he'd go, no, 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 no. It was getting close to shooting and the entire movie was cast except for that role. Wesley got the part right away. It, 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 and it was his first job out of school, too. Uh, Woody had been on Broadway. He was on, he had been on Broadway Bound, or yeah, Broadway Bound, the Neil Simon play, uh, which is where I first saw him. And it was getting close to shooting, and the movie, had, and this was the only role that was left to cast. So I brought a whole bunch of kids that were non-professionals that I had met, who could actually like just say the lines, you know, like get through the scene. Yeah. And I brought them into Michael and I brought Woody back and he's, and he saw them all and he said no to everybody. And then he turned to me when the casting session was over and he said, didn't I see that kid Woody before? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, why'd you bring him back? And I said, because I think you're missing it with him. And he said, well, he's not funny. And I said, well, I think he is. And he said, well, he's not, he doesn't do the scene well keep looking. So I looked and I looked and I looked and I had people back who I had had in before for me and I worked with them and I tried to get something out of them. And Michael swung through New York another time while he was going to Chicago where they shot the movie to look for locations. And it was literally like two weeks, 10 days before the movie was about to shoot. And so I brought in a whole group of people that I had seen before that I had said no to and I brought Woody back. And he met all the kids and blah, 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 blah. And Woody was there and then he left. And he, Michael, the casting session was over. And Michael turned to me and he said, why did you bring that Woody kid back again? I already told you no on him twice. And I was like, because you're missing it. You're missing it. He's as good as this part is. And he's the right person for the part. And I don't know what else to do except to tell, keep telling you that. And he's like, okay. We're going to have one more casting session before I shoot this movie. You need to find me new people and do not bring that Woody kid back. Don't do it. So about maybe two days before the casting session, I get a call from my boss in LA telling me that he's coming through again. He doesn't want to see Woody and Anthea Silbert, who was Goldie's producer and Goldie were going to be in the casting session. So I got in touch with Woody's agent and I said, tell Woody to call me. <laughs> Woody called me and I said, okay, here's the what. He doesn't get it with you. He doesn't want to see you again, but I'm bringing you in again. Now here's the deal. And Thea, Goldie's producer and Goldie are going to be in the room. I want you to wear athletic gear, like wear a wife beater because Woody had an incredible body back then. I said, I want you to wear a wife beater and some gym shorts when you come in to read the scene and do exactly what you've done before. And he said, okay, no problem. 
we have the casting session. I bring in all the other guys. And then I brought in Woody last and I bring Woody in and Michael Ritchie looked at me like a daggers could kill. <laughs> and we do the scene and he walks out of the room and Anthea Silbert, Goldie's producer turns to Michael Ritchie and goes, hire him. And that's how he got the job. And what did you do? Like a little fist pump in the corner? Like, yeah. No, no, no. I was not. I was not being smug. No, I or, uh, oh, I, I know. I mean, like a little like, like to yourself. Well, yes, to this day. So cut to years later, my brother is at a Bob Dylan concert and, he, and he's going down the row and he sees Woody Harrelson. And he tells me this story. And I said, oh, he starts to tell me this story. I said, oh, Mark, you didn't. You just didn't. Just tell me you didn't. And he said, yeah, I went up to him. I said, hi, I'm Mark Daniels. I'm Glenn's brother. I thought I should say hello. And Woody said to my brother, you tell Glenn I owe him everything. Because he knew. He knew that I got him in that job. And furthermore, to the point, the way he got Woody on Cheers is that James Brooks called Goldie and said, I know you're working with a bunch of young guys and it's a comedy. Is there anybody you're working with who you think is really good that I should see because I'm putting a new role on Cheers? And she said, yeah, there's this kid, Woody Harrelson, and he's great. God, that's amazing. And that's how he got Cheers. The domino effect. So I'm telling you this whole story because sometimes as a casting director, that's what you have to do. You know better than the director on some things that they're if they're just not getting it, if they're, if, if they're just not getting it. Yeah. And cool. you've got to, you've got to, sometimes you've got to shove it down their throats. That was, that was an awesome story. So, so another movie that, I, that you worked on again, of the ones that I know now Tango and cash, when you were brought on for that, were, the, were those roles already for Stallone and Kurt Russell? Only Stallone. Oh, who were some of the oh, options to be opposite of him? Oh God! Well, it was you know it was the late eighties. So so at that time in at that point in time, you could not at least at Warner Brothers you could not mention the name Michael Douglas or Brad Pitt. Like you couldn't mention those names. They'd go, Oh God, no. Really? And that was before yeah that was before Wall Street and that was before Thelma and Louise. Oh, okay. So they, so even though you know everybody knows who Michael Douglas is and nobody knew who Brad Pitt was, they didn't they didn't want to hear those names. So it was a very short list of people that they would accept, and Kurt Russell was on the list, so they said yes. But I have another story to tell yes. you about how Terry Hatcher got that part. Oh, cool, go. Yeah. So Andre Konchalovsky was casting the movie. I was directing the movie. And he had this idea of what that role should be like. And his idea of what the role should be like was very much based on the fact that he had, I'm not sure if he had dated her or if he was very good friends with Shirley MacLaine. And he wanted the personality of that role, Kiki, to be very much like Shirley MacLaine. He never used her name but he would describe it to me all the time. And I would think to myself, well, you're talking about Charlie McCoy. I mean, you know, it was pretty obvious. So, but she had to dance and she had to be believable as Stallone's sister. 
And that was the part that was really, really hard for me because all the girls who could dance were either blonde or whatever, whatever. And as soon as I got this part and this script, and as soon as he told me what it was that he was looking for, I thought to myself, Terry Hatcher, it's Terry Hatcher. This is what he's looking for. He's looking for Terry Hatcher. (laughs) So we went through this whole big rigmarole of screen. And this is the time that John Peters, who was, Um, producing the movie was dating Kim Basinger. So his idea of this role was he wanted somebody blonde and blue eyed. And I kept saying to Andre, but it's supposed to be Stallone's sister. Like, why would Stallone have a blonde, blue eyed sister? (laughs) It makes no sense whatsoever. But John Peters, who had a lot of sway at that time, had a hard on for blonde, blue eyed women. So he still does. He just married Pamela Anderson. He he just married one. He just (laughs) married one. So um, anyway, uh, we went through this whole, we went through months and months and months and months and months. And then we finally screen tested three girls, an actress who I don't know whatever became of her. You might know as a cinephile. Her name was Karen Young. Do you know who that is? Uh, Let me see. Keep talking. I'll look it up. Okay. And we, and we screen tested this girl named Daphne Ashbrook. And we screen tested Terry Hatcher. And you would look at the screen tests and it was so obvious that this part was Terry Hatcher's part that it wasn't even funny. And, oh God, I'm wondering if I, where, where does this get broadcast? Where does, I just, it's a about? podcast. And how many listeners do you have? Uh, well, it varies per episode, but I've only been doing it for probably about like eight months. So some have like, a hundred listens, some have four hundred, so it depends. And it's on YouTube too. But you're not saying anything bad, so I wouldn't worry. <laughs> I'm about to. Okay. Anyways, those are the three girls that we screen tested, and it was obvious to me and it was obvious to Andre that Terry Hatcher was the cinch. John Peters would not approve her. And he absolutely would not approve her. And I, I, I'm trying, I, I have to edit this story as sure. I tell it to you because there's certain things that I just can't say. Yeah, that's cool. But he would not approve her. And he made us hire Daphne Ashbrook, who was completely wrong for the part. But the only reason we screen tested her was because he wanted a, a pretty blonde, blue eyed girl for it. And she was just that. And Karen Young screen tested for it because she was the closest to Shirley MacLaine. So that's why the three who were tested were tested. So he made us hire Daphne Ashbrook and I was crestfallen. And I said to Andre, why is this happening? Can't you do something? Can't you do something? And I'll never forget. He said to me, Glenn, it's a wave. Ride it. Don't drown. I'll never, ever forget those words from him. That's good. And I thought, okay, well, fine. Okay, whatever. That part did not start working until about five or six weeks into shooting. And one, I was in a screening at Warner Brothers, a private screening, watching the movie, Spike Lee's movie, Do the Right Thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, wait. No, I did. I forgot a big part of the story. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I was so, and this is the best part of the story. I was so upset that Terry didn't get the part 
that after they made me hire Daphne Ashbrook, before they started shooting, I happened to know Sly's assistant, Susan, really well. So I called Susan on the phone and I said, I need to talk to your boss. Can you set it up? And she said, I'm going to put you on hold for a minute. And she put me on hold for a minute and she came back and she said, can you come out here right now? And I said, uh, yeah, okay. And I was in the Valley at Warner Brothers and Sly's studio was in Santa Monica and I must've driven 120 miles an hour. <laughs> and I, it was at lunchtime and I'm dodging in and out of traffic and I have the screen test with me and I go into <coughs> Sly's office and I'm sitting at the table with him and his desk is completely cleared of everything. It was a glass top table in this great big white room in this old industrial something in Santa Monica. And there's him and me and an Academy Award sitting on this table. And that's all that there is. And I said, okay, I, I hate to do this to you. I said, but have you seen the screen tests of the, of the part for your sister? And he said, no, I haven't seen them. And I said, well, they're making a big mistake. They've hired the wrong girl. So I show him the screen test and he said, who do you like? You like that brunette, don't you? And I said, yeah, she's the most believable for the part. And she's the best dancer. And she's exactly what Andre is looking for. And she's the only one who's believable is your sister. And he said, okay, thanks for coming. And he didn't say a word to me. That was, he didn't say, yeah, whatever. I'll take care of it. Nothing. <laughs> he just said, he said, yeah, okay, great. Thanks. Thanks for sharing this with me and blah, 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 blah. Cut to about six weeks later and the part starts shooting. And this actress, Daphne, had one day on the set and it became apparent to everybody that she wasn't right for the part. So I get a call from, the, from who was it from, from the line producer saying, can you get Terry Hatcher to the set tomorrow morning at six o'clock? And I was like, what? They interrupt me from the screening. They stop the screening of Do the Right Thing. They shut the <laughs> film down. And over the loudspeaker, they said, is Glenn Daniels in here? And I said, yes. And they said, you have a phone call. And my first thought at the time was, the only reason anybody would interrupt me was to tell me that my dad had passed away. I couldn't imagine why they were interrupting the screening to yeah. a phone call. And it was a phone call from the line producer who had called my office, got my assistant and said, he's in a screening room watching the screening of Do the Right Thing. They interrupted me. They, um, the line producer said, I think it was Larry Franco, said to me, uh, can you get Terry Hatcher on the set at six o'clock in the morning? And I was like, I don't know. I think I can. Let me see. I'm really good friends with her agent, which was true. I was very, very close friends with her agent, Howard Goldberg. So I leave the screening. I, to this day, I've never seen the end of the movie. I leave the screening. I went home and I called Howard. And I was, and he wasn't home and I'm leaving frantic messages for him on his answering machine. And this was before cell phones. So like you could only do what you could do. Yeah. And I waited for him to call me back and I waited for him to call me back. And he finally calls me back at about 11 o'clock at night. And he had been through the whole saga with me because we were good friends. He had been through the whole saga with me about Terry not getting this part. And I said, okay. You're not going to believe what I'm going to say to you. And he said, what? What? You've been leaving these frantic messages. And I said, we need to get Terry Hatcher on the set at six o'clock in the morning tomorrow on Tango and Cash. And he's like, good luck. She's in Mozambique with her boyfriend who's shooting a movie. 
And I said, no, no just, just tell me anything, but just don't tell me that. And she, he's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure she's in Mozambique. Let me check. I'll call you right back. <laughs> he calls me back in about 10 minutes and she goes, she's supposed to leave in the morning. And I said, well, she's not leaving in the morning because she's going to be on the set of Tango and Cash shooting the movie. And he and I quick struck a deal and she ended up on the set at six o'clock in the morning on Tango and Cash. And that's how she got the part. Damn. Was that her first like big role? Yes. Oh, wow. Man, Glenn, that's awesome. Yeah. That's so cool. So, so yeah. So one movie, I know, I know we're up on it. I don't know. Do you only have a couple more minutes? I have like two minutes, so make it fast. Sweet. So I have to ask about Hard to Kill. So that movie. Oh, God. The gall was oh, attached Lordy. to it. So, so here, let me preface this, because I know you talked about it before, about like uh, not saying anything bad. I've interviewed William Sadler. He had yep. not really good things to say about uh Seagal. I interviewed Michael Grace, who wrote a Seagal movie and he wrote Poltergeist. He didn't have anything good to say, and a few other people. But how was it? Did you have to deal with him at all? Way too much. <laughs> so was he in in there? Like he was he like a John Peters, like trying to choose? Like who was the first choice for like uh, Sadler's part? Was he early on, or is something you looked at and found? Oh, he, uh, I was a friend. Of, I, I was a fan of Billy Sadler's forever and ever and ever. And I would oh, bring cool. him in for anything that he was vaguely right for. And he was considered to be one of the best character actors and still is, you know. I love him. Forever was, and, I mean, yeah. every casting director loves Billy Sadler. Everybody yeah. does. They're, they're, what's not to love? Yeah. No, the biggest problem I had on that film, and that's all I'm going to say about it, and then we've got to end our call, is yeah. getting people to want to be in a. Steven Seagal movie. Oh, and it's only like his third or fourth movie and he already has that reputation. That's crazy. Yeah. Uh, and and here's, here's what I'm going to leave you with. This is okay. really funny. When that movie, this is really funny. When that movie, when I was done casting that movie, I was like, thank God that's over and I don't have to deal with it anymore and blah, 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 blah. I was living at the time up in the hills above the Warner Brothers studio and my neighbor about five doors down was, oh God, um, Les Moonves. He lived about five doors down from me. And I get up the next Monday after I'm done working on that movie to go to work. And I drive by Les's house and they're shooting Hard to Kill there. <laughs> the first scene was shot in Les Moonves's house. Oh my God. As a location. And I, as I drove by to go to work, I saw everybody that I knew from the crew and the line producer and all this kind of stuff. And I thought, Oh my God, this movie is going to haunt me forever. <laughs> like I just can't get away from it. Oh my God. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks man. So there you go. That's what I got for you. Cool, man. If you ever want to chat again, I, you were awesome. Well, thank you very much. Um, you know, I don't like giving interviews, so that's probably unlikely, but thank you for that's making cool. it easy. Hey, you know what? I really appreciate it. And that was a lot of fun. You're not a bore. Would you do me a favor? When you, when you post this, wherever you post it, will you send me a link? Oh, totally, man. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. All right, cool. I'm out of here. All right. Bye. Uh man, that wasn't that amazing? Man, I just wanted to keep talking to him. And then when I went back to edit, because this interview is from earlier in the year, um, 
I just, I was like getting sadder and sadder when I saw that it was getting close to the end because we packed in so much in 45 minutes. And Glenn, I hope you had a good time if you're listening because I'd love to talk to you again because there's so many other parts of his career like, oh my God, the stories involving, you know, Seagal and him loving Billy Sadler as much as we love Billy Sadler. And man, I don't know. But remember, uh, this Thursday, because we're packing a bunch in this month, is our review for Child's Play 3, which Glenn cast it for. I watched the movie the other night, and I took a photo of his name, which is pretty cool. And don't forget to review, rate, share our podcast, follow us on all social media, at Sequels Only, and don't forget to check out our website, SequelsOnly.com. Good night.